This episode of the Copy Blogger Podcast is brought to you by Digital Commerce Partners. Every online business needs traffic, but the wrong traffic is worthless. And if you're paying for traffic that doesn't convert, it's worse than worthless. What you need are qualified prospects primed to purchase your digital products and services. Digital Commerce Partners offers a strategic approach to traffic that helps your business win big. Since 2006, Copyblogger founder Brian Clark has been teaching creative content marketing and effective SEO. And we've practiced what we preached, building an eight-figure bootstrapped software, online education, and hosting business. Now, you're the one with the great digital products, maybe an online course, virtual community, or a SaaS product. And you've got a tried and true sales funnel that converts the right people into customers. Well, it's time to fill that funnel. Not with any old traffic. You need your type of people. And our strategic content marketing process will bring them to you. New customers are the lifeblood of your digital business. And yet it's the quality of your products and services that will ultimately determine your level of success. With digital commerce as your partner, the return on investment will be clear. Your existing offers will be more profitable and you can focus on developing new products and growing your brand. We build profitable digital commerce products and businesses for ourselves and those we work with. For us, providing content marketing and SEO services to clients was the last step, not the first. As the agency production arm of content marketing pioneer Copyblogger, Digital Commerce Partners works with you to deliver the prospects you need to succeed. Let's explore how we can help your business win. To learn more, simply go to digitalcommerce.com. That's digitalcommerce.com. Hello, and welcome to the Copy Blogger Podcast. My name is Tim Stoddart. Thank you so much for joining me. In today's episode, we speak with the founder of Creative Elements, Jay Klaus. Jay is a writer, a podcaster, and a community manager. In Jay's podcast, Creative Elements, he explores how remarkable creators found creative independence. Through narrative interviews, Jay dives into the nitty-gritty of how the world's best creators make a living from their art and creativity. In this episode, we talk about how Jay works with entrepreneurs and how he uses creativity as a secret weapon that gives them a distinct advantage. We also go back and forth in a fun brainstorm session to try to find a title for one of my products. And it was a really fun exercise and I think you'll enjoy it. Lastly, we talk about Jay's framework for managing a successful membership site. Jay is the manager of the Smart Passive Income membership and his advice to me was so helpful that I immediately took advantage and applied it to our own membership site, Copyblogger Pro. I love this chat. Jay is super kind, down to earth. It was a great conversation and I know you'll love it as well. So please help me welcome Jay Klaus. Jay, what's up, man? Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. I'm really looking forward to our chat. What's up, Tim? We have roughly the same microphone, but you have like the better version. Yeah, but what you have, like this stand drives me crazy because Mm -hmm. I can never get it to like point directionally at me. And so I'm like too animated when I talk, you know what I mean? And I always feel like I have to be really, really mindful of it. And plus it takes up like half my screen. I got to I got to up gotta my setup a little flip bit. Flip it. You just got to insert sure. the, <laughs> yeah. the shock mount. So it's, you got the boom effect right now. People are like, 
make sure you get Tim's audio. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. Uh, cool. Well, thanks so much for joining me. I, I We were talking a little bit before we started recording. Like, I, I feel like I know you. Um, we're in a lot of the same internet circles, sort of speak, and uh, I've been following your work for a while, so I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, man. Likewise, Twitter is a cool place in that way because uh, it's fun. We, we've never t- chatted one-on-one like this, but we can drop on. And it's just like, I don't feel like I have to have on any airs or anything. I know Tim. Yeah. Tim knows me. We can hang out. We can have a good time. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, let's rock and roll. I start my podcast with the same question every time. The background photo of your Twitter bio. Speaking of Twitter, I want you to tell me about it and tell me what it means to you. Man, I have messed with this are we can we cuss on this i have oh, yeah, fucked totally. with this so much yeah. um because i just don't think it needs to be like anything um so right now what it is is just like some brush strokes in different colors that are the brand colors of the brand that i had an agency help me with for all of my writing and my workshops and my podcast and things like that um it's just called a pattern i love patterns now that i know what patterns are in branding speak and uh <laughs> it pulls things together but also like it just looks nice without being distracting or having a ton of text. You don't have to worry about like resizing on things because it's just, it's just a pattern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like your shirt and go infinitely. Well, you mentioned your brand. Um, I mean, I, I'll just come out and say it. Like you've built a real great portfolio of work that you've created over the years. Um, you're a great writer. You're a great podcaster. I don't know if, if you're a designer. And one thing that I always notice about your website is the design of it. So whoever did it did a great job. Um, I, I like to just open these really conversationally. Like what got you into the idea of generating content online? Got it, you into the idea of like of serving an audience and, and building a business that way? Because your brand is, um, I don't like to use the word professional so much because I think like there's times where being unprofessional is actually what you're going for. Sure. Right. But it's, it's just clean and polished and it's clear that you've put so much work into it, man. So I want to hear about it. Dude, that means a lot. Thank you. Um, I have because the people I like to know and talk to and help are creative people and they have like pretty discerning taste and design is such a, uh, it's such a big, important factor in the way that we trust things or believe in things or follow things like any, any brand we align with as people, we kind of like, there's, uh, there's like, it rubs off on you in such a way where if you identify with this or you associate with this, it's going to have some sort of reflection on you. So people creative people in particular, I think are really mindful of that, whether it's conscious or subconscious. And so they're just very discerning in what they align with. And it has to look and feel good and it has to be aligned with them. So I'm not a designer. I really wish I was this. That is like the one skill set that I just badly, badly, badly wish that I possessed. Mm. But, um, I just realized that if my things look legitimate, like I literally just think, does this look legit? And if it looks legit, then it will back up what I'm saying, which I think is usually pretty good. Like if my, if you listen to the podcast, if you read what I write, generally people are like, that's pretty good. Now, if you pair that with it, just looking legitimate, I think it's a winning package. And that's pretty much what I go for. I did implement the brand on the website myself, which is great. But, you know, it all started really in 2017, in January. I was working a job at a healthcare startup and I was not feeling it. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) I had like just gotten out of this other business that I had helped start and we went through an accelerator and we sold it and it's like, woohoo, we win. But you know, there was like this identity issue where in that company I was co-founder, uh, like the number two guy. And then when it was over, I was nothing unless I started something, which I didn't know yeah. what I wanted to start. I didn't want to start another software platform. Um, taking a job as a product manager, like I had the skill set, but there's just something about when you run your own thing, you have more access to anybody and anything that you want because there's just this undeniable, like invisible hierarchy of who you can talk to based on like what you do. And it sucks, but uh, I wasn't feeling the job. So I was working with a creative coach named Chris McAllister and he helped me identify that I had this very limiting belief that I was not creative, that I was just like an operational, um, awesome guy that can take ideas and make them real, but I don't have any ideas of my own. And once I identified that, I realized, okay, sucks to believe that. How can I stop believing that? And the answer was writing every day. So I started writing every day and that was the start of it. That is such an interesting concept because that goes perfectly into what I was hoping to talk about next. You have this concept of creativity around your brand. And man, I think about the word creativity a lot because it's one of those words that means like everything and also means nothing at the same time, you know? And so, and so I I think when we hear creativity, we think of art, right? We think of maybe drawing or painting or, or I don't know, just a, a, a creative, um, outlet in some, some kind of art, but creativity is so much more than that. Like it took me some time to realize that I'm also a creative person, but I am a terrible designer. I'm a pretty good writer, I like to think. Um, But creativity has manifested itself for me in a way that isn't typically thought of as, you know, that narrow definition. And so I I really think it's cool how you're, you're taking this concept and expanding it where, like you said, it's a limiting belief and creativity can mean anything that you think it can. I've, I've expressed my creativity in systems really like I'm a good executive um I'm really good at creating workflows and processes and systems the the book god I've mentioned this book on my podcast so many times I'm sure people are sick of hearing about it but it's called the e-myth by Michael Gerber and just this idea that you can take uh something that is a skill and create processes and systems around it to like scale something that traditionally is unscalable it really just gets like my creative brain flowing. And so that weird, almost idiosyncratic skill set has turned into this whole way for me to be able to express my creativity in a way that, like I said, wouldn't traditionally be thought of. So I think that's like a, a statement, even more than a question, but I want to hear how, how that statement would, would, would bounce off of you. I definitely think about creativity more aligned with problem solving these days than I yeah. do with like, visual artistry, which is where I think a lot of us, unfortunately, the way that we're, we're raised, we associate creativity with visual artistry. And some people have that and it's amazing. And that becomes a big part of their identity. And I think historically, a lot of people who have visual artistry as their identity, as a creative, for whatever the reason, they were very guarded about that. And it made it feel inaccessible to people who weren't visual creatives, but these days, when I'm at my best, I, I think I'm one of the most creative people that I know because 
I can quickly be dropped into a situation with limited information and the need for an outcome and come up with the outcome. And it's going to be pretty good, you know? And to me, that's like a very creative act to be able to take limited information, some hard constraints, which is usually deadlines and like business objectives and be like, okay, based on that, here's the path forward. And I feel like that's like where I'm at my best. And I think that is inherently very, very creative, even though you don't really see it. It's like making something that didn't exist before with a small amount of inputs. (laughs) I think that's creativity. I think that is such a great definition of it. Like creativity is problem solving. That's something that in my company, we talk about all the time where, you know, I don't want to get like on my soapbox here, but I think you're right. Are the school, let's just call it the education system really programs us for like following spec, right? Where in order to succeed in today's world, the true skill is just to be able to look at something that is abstract and figure out what to do, <laughs> you know? And so we always say uh, in, in, in Stasi, in my agency, like, use your brain. That's just the thing that we say all the time, use your brain. And, you know, I think I'm getting a little bit meta here, but like that act of creativity is nothing more than just using your brain. Like, what do I have to do here? What is the next step? What is the sequence of events that I need to take in order to solve this problem? Yeah, it's, it's connecting, it's connecting the inputs. It's like, I have all these data points. What's the way to arrange them to get to what we're trying to do or achieve or solve? I I think that's, you know, what creativity is. I had a guest on creative elements, talk about creativity as the combination of something that is novel and valuable. And I do like that. I like that a lot because problem solving. Can you elaborate what that means? It means that, uh, it's something that has some level of uniqueness to it. Mm-hmm. but there's also value to it. Like you can make something that is completely uh, unique, but if there's no value to it, how creative is it really? Uh, and vice versa. If you make something that is valuable, but is not unique, like it's kind of like the, the build a better mousetrap thing. It's like, sure, it's not like that paperclip. creative. Yeah. It's like, it's not that creative either. So I like that definition because I do believe that, especially for creators who want to make a living with their art and creativity, you have to create value for other people. Like the starving artist thing isn't really something to aspire to in my opinion, because like, are you starving? Because the thing that you're making doesn't provide any value to somebody else, or you're not putting it in a position where the people who would find it valuable are actually able to find it, have it, interact with it. And that's on you. Um, I I think that combination of novel and valuable is really good. But the other thing that I've learned a lot about creativity is novel has a limit where we actually like things to have some familiarity to them. That's why anything on top 40 radio, like kind of sounds like something else in a way, because it's comfortable. It's familiar. We feel like, Oh, this is new and exciting. It's like interrupting the pattern a little bit, but there's enough pattern matching for our brains to say, I know where this is going. And I like that. Uh, There's this really great example from a book called hit makers by Derek yeah i want to say yeah yeah. it's just the same pattern over and over again in like some different way (laughs) yeah he he talked about um spotify's discover weekly and when discover weekly was first released the idea of the product was that it would be all new songs to you and it had like immediate success and then they realized shit there's a bug here actually discover weekly is showing people some songs they've heard before so they turned that off and made it so it was totally new songs things that you'd never heard before and it got less popular immediately because people believed when there were songs on there they had heard before and had enjoyed that Spotify must 
really know something about me. You know, there's like a little bit of familiarity there. And I think about that all the time because it's like, you can't go, you can't over index and do things completely uniquely and just like create your own vocabulary for every single thing that you're doing because it's too far <laughs> and it, it won't stick. And it's, it's asking a lot of the person receiving. Wow. Um, geez, let me almost chew on that for a second. Uh, Cause I totally agree. Very insightful. Like it, it's almost like being so abstract is like a cop-out of creativity, right? Because no one can tell you that you're not creative because nobody did this before sort of thing. But at the same time, where is the actual um, connection to life and to value and to humanity if you're creating something that is um, so unique that it has, that it's, it's worthless. And so cool, like what, what a great way to, um, to translate that into something that we can all relate to. And I was thinking about it myself, like, wow, I have my Discover Weekly thing, but if every once in a while, a song doesn't pop up that I don't recognize. It's almost like the rest of the songs have no sort of uh, connective tissue to me. And I think yeah. like, what, why, why would I like this? This doesn't make any sense, you know? So yeah. you need almost like a bridge between what you know and what you don't know. Yeah. I think, and there's this, this point of like being too uh, novel or being too unique. I'm, I'm deeply ambivalent about it because what I've seen over the last couple of years is there's a lot of value to be had. If you name something, mm. if you have a concept that you apply a memorable name to think about like cohort based courses right now, CBCs, the Maven Brian team Clark has... is so good at this. It drives <laughs> me nuts. He's always like really good at having like a catchy little name for some yes. concept that we all know about, you know, yes. but he just has a, a way to define it. And when it makes sense, it becomes perpetuated and usually yeah. attributed to the person who named it, which is just amazing. But then also that drives people to create new names for the same concept, which just kind of waters things down and creates just a million frameworks out of the same framework. Uh, so I'm very like ambivalent about this because I strive to do this naming thing. I want to do it. I feel like I've kind of hit gold recently with this idea of creative independence because I can tie it to the idea of financial independence as a foil and say like, here's why this is different. Uh, but I don't see other people talking about it in that way. And so I'm looking at that and I'm saying, this is great. Now this is a lens that I can apply to certain things to change the way people talk. And I can perpetuate that in my writing that can be perpetuated by the people who talk about it. It'll be attributed to me that can become a platform for a talk, a book or whatever. And there's a lot of value in that. But if you go too far, um, Seth Godin was the first guest I had on my podcast and he talked about, there was a book he wrote, I forget the name of it, probably because this is a problem for him. He <laughs> yeah. invented too much language. He was just like, I was out of control. I created too many things and it was just too much because there, there is a limit there. It's like, you can't just continuously invent new language and not build equity behind it mm. to just have a new thing. Certainly. And I'm experiencing that myself. I'll give you a little bit of an example. I believe, I'm trying not to explain too much of it. I'm a believer in, in service businesses for entrepreneurs that like want to just get started. I think that it's too, uh, it's, it's too tempting for somebody that wants to build their own business and think like, okay, I'm going to right away create a product that has like a million leverage because we all love using that word these days, you know? And I'm like, the best place to start is as a freelancer. And then I wrote this whole um, scheme to basically be a freelancer, be um, like a, a 
a glorified freelancer where you start hiring some contractors, have an agency, be a CEO. And then eventually what I've done is like your agency becomes its own production company because you can almost like hire yourself to build other assets for you. And it's worked really well for me. And so I've been trying to figure out like, how do I name this concept? How do I- Gotta name it. Yeah, like how do I define <laughs> this process that I've put together where you're, you're no longer an agency, you're no longer answering a million emails and being bogged down by client uh, emails all the time and, and, and people always a demand for your time. You're out of the system and now your agency is like your asset slash production company. And so I've been going back and forth so many times with uh, turn your agency into an asset or turn your agency into a production company. And neither of them have stuck. And it's like driving me fucking crazy because like, I wanted to work mm -hmm. so bad so that I can I can put my name on on a, a new um, uh, on a new theory or system that like I've created, you know. What about this? See, this is where like my creativity kicks in. And this is what I love to jam on. What cool. about uh, productized agency? Sure. And I've thought about that a lot. Um, I don't know if you know Brian Cassell. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he's got that um, as well. But I think with productized agency, what I think of at least is that you have one service that yeah. you've more or less like repeated over and over again. So that that one particular thing is uh, so easily repeated that it becomes like a product, whereas it's not like the service itself that I'm duplicating, but it's mm -hmm. the system which makes an agency scalable, which is like really hard. Like it, that's always the problem with agencies is that you don't scale them and you're working like 70 hours a week and then you get burned out and you're like, this entrepreneurship thing isn't for me. And so like the system that I've generated scales an agency so that you can actually take a step back away from it and apply the agency itself. Like like an asset, you know what I mean? You can yeah. apply this media asset that you have to other things. And I'm just, I, we're, we're jamming it a little bit here, which isn't what I usually do on my podcast, but I've had a, a difficult time um, defining that that process. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm playing around with other ideas, like from hours to asset or- That's uh, cool. I don't know. This is what, if, if you don't stop me, I'll jam on this for like literally the next 20 minutes because. Hey man, shoot me an email. Like, yeah, I let like me know because I need help. <laughs> but it needs to be short. It needs to be like, yeah, it needs to be probably like three words or less. Agreed. All right. Let me move on from here. You mentioned making a living uh, when you were talking about creativity and you mentioned sure. making a living from creativity, I think it's so important to make that distinction because I worry sometimes that in this world of like endless content, people think that if I just make content, eventually I'll make money from it. And that's very rarely the case. You have to really like be able to apply some, some business skills and execute on them. So where do we go? If, if I come to you, I say like, Hey, I'm striving to be a more creative person. I want to start creating things. Like how would I turn that into an actual, into a way to make a living? Well, I do agree with you. If you do want to be self-employed for that journey, freelancing and services are the best place to start. It's just the fastest yeah. way to make a livable wage that there is. Yeah. Um, so that's number one, but lately what I've been jamming on is I, I've always been worried that my podcast, my writing would shame people into feeling like they had to be self-employed to be creatively 
fulfilled and like reach their creative independence. And I don't think that's necessarily true because when you are getting started, if you are putting financial pressure on the things that you make, it's going to change the decisions that you make. You're like by design, removing some of the independence you have because you're beholden to needing to make whatever the amount of money you need to make is to pay your bills. So I tell people more often, like, I think probably the faster path, quite frankly, and probably the better path is to do it on the side of a job and like make the things you want to make without compromise in the way you want to make them. Because to like really stand out, your work has to have such a you, like a you-ness to it, an essence of you to it that's different because otherwise you're going to be looking around at everyone else and saying, that looks like that's working. How do I model what I want to do after that? Because that looks like that's working. And I think that subtly undermines your ability to like really build what you can long-term because it's not that novel and it's not really you. And you'll probably get burned out on doing it because it's not you. I, I feel like it's probably better to take all financial pressure off of your creativity if that's where you want to make a living. So you can do that to its fullest until that's starting to generate some income because you see some genuine aligned opportunities. And then you feel the pressure of like, I can't do both these things anymore. I'm going to flip over to mine full time. And then you have like a better base to start from. Totally agree with you, man. It's always really refreshing to hear people say that I am weary anytime I see quit your job. It's a terrible suggestion. Like why would anybody quit their job? Unless they at least, I don't know. I suppose there are instances where it's like, you got to burn the ships. Right. And I get that. But at the same time, I think the likelihood of the likelihood of success is greater. If you give yourself a runway for failure, because you need to learn how to do stuff. And if every single thing you do has urgency and or like a demand of success behind it, then eventually you mentioned Seth Godin, right? There's a real Seth Godin concept. Then that's just a race to the bottom because then you're constantly scrambling for sales. And the only thing you can do to differentiate yourself is just to be cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And, you know, there's Amazon and yeah. we'll never beat them at being the cheapest and, and being the most commoditized. A so lot yeah, of people, it's, it's really refreshing to hear that. I think a lot of people quit their job to create a job for themselves. Yeah. But like it's a job. It's not, it's not really what they thought they're going to get into, you know? Um, so even freelancing, when people want to get started freelancing, I tell them like, start on the side, build a portfolio, figure out what you like, build some buffer for yourself. Because if you burn the ships and say, I'm going to freelance, there's a pretty big lead period to, okay, now I need to socialize that. I need to have conversations. Those need to turn into productive conversations. I need to get a contract. I need to do the work that I'm going to get paid. That could be like three months. So mm -hmm. like start that clock when you don't have the pressure wait until you're generating some sort of income so that you can at least, you know, say, even if this isn't the level of income that I want on my own, I have something to build from. I'm not starting from zero and I'm not just straight burning cash for the first X number of days, weeks, or months. There are some people that thrive under that pressure and that's like what drives them. And if that's you, okay, you probably know that about yourself. If that's not you, like be cautious. <laughs> yeah, great advice. All right, I also want to talk to you about membership sites. This is actually one of the things that I was most excited to talk to you about, because I think especially with COVID, 
the idea membership sites seem like a really easy plug and play way to monetize a brand, right? Let's say you have a blog, you have a podcast, you're starting to get some followers. Like, okay, how do I make money here? I know membership site. The problem is that like, they're very hard. <laughs> they're way harder than people give them credit for. Um, I've learned this through doing copy blogger pro. It's really the first membership site that I've done and I've made a lot of mistakes and I've definitely gotten much better at it to the point where I feel like we have a premier product now. Um, but you have been doing this work for some time. And I think you have a lot more insight as to what it takes to, um, to what's the word delight members, as opposed to just, you know, have them come in, pay for two months and then, and then yeah. be out, which is usually what happens in like this revolving door of, of membership sites. So what, what do you think has been like your secret sauce to that? Um, well, first off, excuse you... me, let me take a step back. Uh, please say the membership site that like you are, are managing and how that came together. So people have some context. Sure. I lead the community experience team at smart passive income, yeah. um, company started by Pat Flynn in 2008. It was grown when he acquired Matt Gartland's agency in 2015, I want to say. Um, we made a huge effort towards making community central to our business model in 2020, especially this year, 2021. And that's a paid community, first and foremost. But we also started doing our own cohort-based courses, which we call boot camps. And we moved all of our course communities into one single community off of Facebook this year as well. And I feel like I've learned a lot through the last year plus of doing it that some of the stuff I got lucky early on, like I joined the team because I had built a 100 person community through like basically on the back of a recurring 12 week program. It was a mastermind program. It was 12 weeks long. The people who went through it, I put them into a Slack channel and over time there were hundred people in that Slack channel and they were really cool, uh, like morally and ethically aligned people that got along really well. I think I got to that point because I spent a lot of time uh, organizing startup weekend events here in Columbus. So like I was cool. very experienced in real world community and that's what made me able to do online community okay even before I had like articulated why certain things work. Yeah. So last year has been a lot of like articulating here are things that I've learned and why they work and what I was wrong about and what I would do instead. And I think it comes down to three things. First one being a very clear purpose for why the community exists and what you're mm -hmm. going to get out of it. Because what a lot of people do is they fail right off the bat because yeah. they, they see this excitement of like, oh, I can have recurring revenue by saying I'm going to have a community. They put it up, they make a digital space, they send an email, people sign up, but they don't really make clear what the point is and what you're going to get out of it. So everyone who joins has their own story. They've told themselves as to what the value of this is going to be. And you as the creator don't know what those stories are. So you don't even know how to succeed with those people. If you're really, really clear up front, you apply a filter. So everyone coming in has the same understanding and you know how you can succeed. From there, the second thing is onboarding. You need to make a very clear, comfortable, um, easy to understand experience for now that I know what the purpose of this is, how do I start experiencing that? And how quickly can you make me believe that I've made the right choice? Um, it comes down to, I think, introducing people to each other. So they feel comfortable within the space. They need to know like literally how to make use of the membership and they need to feel seen and appreciated and um, 
like they're on the path to achieving that purpose or transformation they talked about. And the third thing is the experience needs to be what I call gratifying. We all love instant gratification. That's like not a total new word, but people try to measure engagement, like how many topics are being posted, how many comments are being posted. And what you really want is, are people glad that they're spending time here when they do? Yeah. <laughs> like it's hard to track that in metrics. That's what you're trying to achieve is, are people glad that when they put effort into being a part of this membership, that they see a return on that? And that happens in big and small moments. The, the biggest failure I see people make is they have an introductions channel, which is great. You should have an introductions channel. Making an, introduce, or making an introduction to yourself is a pretty both time-intensive and vulnerable action to take to say, these are a bunch of strangers. I'm going to take 10 to 15 minutes to craft this long written response, introducing you to me and put myself out there for acceptance or not. And people don't reject people necessarily, but what they don't do is like see them and respond to them. And every moment that goes by after I vulnerably say, here I am, do you accept me? Mm -hmm. And if I don't get like the open arms, yes. And here's what we want to know about you. It's not a good experience. And I'll probably not come back. You touched on all three of the things that I think I screwed up when <laughs> I got, and like, I am really, really not kidding, man. So I'm going to go through these. And one of the coolest things about having a podcast and, and I'm sorry, you, what time did you have to say? It was 1040, right? Yeah. 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 You got 20 minutes. Yeah. Cool. One of the coolest things about having a podcast, people think the podcasts are great businesses. They're really not. They're very difficult to monetize and you need like millions of followers if you actually want to do it. The podcast for me has been basically like a personal mastermind of just figuring out what smart people do and then taking their ideas, right? So copy bloggers got a big email list and we get a, a pretty good amount of sign up. So making the initial sale was and continues to be uh, consistent and like reliable. However, I approached it with the same way. I thought to myself, of course, they want to be a part of the coffee blogger community. Like, why wouldn't they want to be, you know, without actually giving like a real clear distinction of this is the person you are now. This is the person that you're going to be when you're in the community and, and truly defining that. I think the biggest mistake that I made um, and this is, is very measurable because our, our refund requests went down so drastically is that people were introduced to the community. Well, they, they, they pay and then they get introduced and they say to themselves like, okay, now what, right? Like we got 14 courses. We got three different groups, like masterminds, coaching sessions, like where the hell do you start? And all I had to do was so simple, but, but so important was take a day, create a eight to nine minute onboarding video that says like, go here, go here. When you go here, do this. When you go here, this is what you want to do. And just spoon feed to people yeah. what they should expect and how they should expect to experience it. That's the um, question that they ask. It's, it's now what? Like how many times can you what? answer the question now what until they have experienced the magic of what you're promising here? Love you basically that. want to spoon feed them an answer now what until they're like, oh yeah, it's happening. Yeah, <laughs> this is so helpful for me. Um, and then you, you, you talk about introduce people to each other. That seems so obvious now that you say it, but before you say it, it seems 
something I wouldn't naturally think of because why would you join a community unless you weren't interested in meeting each other? But it makes me think like, you know, the school dance, right? Like I was the worst awkward, shy kid still am, you know, like I, I feel weird doing podcasts even to this day. And if you put me in a room with a bunch of people, I'm just going to stand in the corner. So yeah, mm -hmm. people sign up for the membership because they think to themselves, like maybe I can be part of something, but it's the same thing as walking into a room with a bunch of people. Totally. Like my natural inclination is to stand in the corner. So how do you like mediate those introductions? Or you look for somebody that you know. Like I think about the meetups yeah. that you go to locally any, all the time. You probably, you know, you have a very specific reason for going. You know the time and place. And you expect that there'll be other people there that you want to meet. But it's still kind of awkward. So you go across town, across town, you open the doors, and you immediately look around like, who do I know here? So I have that blanket of safety right now. Um, the difference is in online community, People don't necessarily realize when you've opened the door and when you're uncomfortable, it's a lot easier to leave. Mm. It's like instant. Um, so, you know, when you host events locally, what you usually do is you, if you're holding the event, you keep an eye open for people who look uncomfortable and you yourself go say, hello, it's great to meet you. Tell me about you. And when they tell you something about them, you say, you got to meet this person because you have like the, the knowledge of the room and who's there and who's going to have a good experience for meeting each other. And the, the, the creator, the curator, the community manager, that person becomes that like brain of the community that knows where those connections need to be made based on what someone tells you they're looking for. And they'll t probably tell you that in their introduction. And if they don't tell you that in their introduction, it's a very easy layup to respond and say, what are you looking to get out of this community? And now the, commu the conversation is continuing and they're telling you how you can succeed and who they should meet. Sure. Yeah, they're giving you the answer. They're telling you exactly what to do. You just have to listen. <laughs> and of course they would do that because they're paying you to be there. They want they want success too. But so often we're just like, all right, fend for yourself, figure it yeah. out. And that's pretty confronting. And also there are a million things competing for our attention at any given time. And if I have the question of now what, and my phone lights up, now I'm texting somebody and I forgot what I'm doing over here in your community. That's so helpful. Okay. And then this third thing, you said measure gratification. You also mentioned that it's a difficult thing to measure, but you're obviously sophisticated in this. How have you been attempting to do that? Super difficult um, because, you know, it makes some intuitive sense that engagement metrics like number of posts, number of comments would have some sort of signal as to whether people were enjoying their time there. Because yeah. why would I log in if I wasn't enjoying my time? But what I see a lot of hap what I see happen a lot of times in communities is the people who join them, they have made a commitment to themselves as so they say, I'm going to try. And to them, trying is like this completionist task of I gotta read everything that's posted, I've gotta comment, I've gotta make an effort. They might not even be enjoying that activity. It might feel like another thing on their to-do list. It might actually be kind of stressful for them. Uh, think about like your classic reddit lurker they love reddit they're on there all the time they are completely missed in all engagement metrics sure. <laughs> but they're enjoying it so how do you measure that and honestly i think the easiest way is just to ask people do a periodic survey ask people anonymously like are you enjoying this experience uh when they churn send an email asking them why they left um yeah. have conversations with these people what we found at spi as the community grew, we're beyond 500 members now. That's a lot of people. And some people want to 
like just making a couple of close friends that they can talk to regularly makes all the difference. So we started doing masterminds or human heard you mentioned masterminds. We handpick and put together masterminds four times per year. And a lot of people engage with their mastermind group and that's it, which on one hand sucks because we've seen like the literal engagement metrics dip over time, but you know what else dipped was churn by a lot. And so that's a good measure, like churn, retention. Those are great measures of gratification because if they're not enjoying it, they're going to leave. Super interesting though, that there's different ideas of what people think is a, of, of what people ideal, how do I say this? What people are seeing as a success in a community that they belong to, right? Just because they're not engaging doesn't necessarily mean they're not getting some out of it just because they are engaging doesn't mean that they are, you know, because I totally hear what you're saying that first two weeks like, okay, I spent my money. I'm committed to this. I really want to do something. And so, you know, ding, 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 comment, 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 post, 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 but those metrics can be very um, misleading into what the underlying tone of the engagement and, and responsiveness is. Totally. Yep. Um, and I've only learned that because I feel like we also did not do a great job of declaring our purpose when we first started. And so we've been playing catch up, trying to understand why do people join? Because they join with a bunch of different reasons. And we could either retroactively say, this is what this community is for. And if you had different expectations, you can leave. Or you can try to identify what do people want? And let's try to win with as many people as we can that are here. Um, and for better or for worse, that's what we've tried to do. Yeah. Um, but it's taken a lot of experimentation, a lot of conversations. And we don't always get it right. And you know what else? I, I we'll end on this, man. You've been so cool, Jay. Like I'm really, really enjoying this. Thank you. But I also think that people um, don't appreciate the daily commitment it takes to continuously keep people engaged within a membership, within a community. Oh, yeah. I went into it thinking that, like, okay, because like I said, I really love automations and systems and processes. Like I really, really thrive with that. So I went into this thinking, like, how can I? leverage software as much as possible, but people can just kind of sniff that out. They have like a bullshit sniffer. And if you're not there, um, being present more or less, they can really feel it. And so I underestimated the daily presence required to, to be there and be a leader of the membership. And, uh, it's, it's, it's been a grind. I, I think a lot of the, re another reason why these five by night membership sites fail is because people don't appreciate that. Like, yeah. daily showing up. And that's something that if you're thinking about starting a membership, you should really think about and take seriously. Um, <laughs> I have suddenly like a very strong hunger to create a membership around this work I'm doing now around creative independence and the creatives that I talk to and impact with my writing, and my podcast. But I'm just thinking through so many scenarios, like how do I make this so that this doesn't become its own job where I'm just expected to be here answering questions all the time. Yeah. That's like the membership that I don't want to create. I want the personal connection with people, but I want expectations to be set appropriately. I want it to be something I look forward to doing and not something that feels like I have to tend to it constantly. And a really like two levers that I think you have to play with are pricing for one, uh, expectations, obviously, but also uh, like the form of value. Because you could have a mem membership where you say definitively the form of value here is connecting with each other and connecting with me. And it's that access that you're getting. Or you could say, actually, the value here is additional or different content. 
stuff you already like, but in a different way. And the expectation isn't Jay's here answering my questions. The expectation is Jay's giving me something that most subscribers aren't getting. And I think that's probably the path that I'll go down, but I'm, I'm just turning this over in my mind quite a bit because I do want the personal connection with people, but I've experienced in the past, like the feeling of the community needs me and expects me. And I don't want to yeah. be there right now. Mm -hmm. We're in really similar wavelengths. I've been thinking a lot with, with the agency stuff. My, my site is called agency clarity. And I, I created my first course. It was very difficult. It took me like a year and a half. Really. I'm not a good product designer. Um, and of course the next step is, all right, you have the product. How do you give that one level up where you can go more in depth with these lessons that I put together, but I'm in the same spot. Like I don't want to be on the hook to the point where I think that where I feel, I shouldn't say, I think where I feel like it's a burden rather than a privilege. And uh, I think people really, really should consider that before they dive in, because once you're in and once you take people's yearly subscription, you know, like you either got to give it back and they're going to be pissed off or you got to keep going. And, yep. uh, and it's, it's a commitment, man. So yeah, that's funny. All right. Jay, what a pleasure. Um, like I said, I feel like I've been getting to know you over the last year, but to have the opportunity to sit and speak to you and, and learn from you has been really great. Thank you. Likewise, man. Great to meet you. Thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah. I'll be in Columbus, um, sometime within the next couple of months. So so we'll get together before we sign off. All right. So what do we got? We got jklaus.com. That's your creative elements website. Um, can find you on Twitter. We can find you at smartpassiveincome.com as well. Any other shout outs you want to give? I would just say, if you're listening to this, you like podcasts, listen to creative elements. I think you'll like it. Excellent. All of that will be in the show notes. Um, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter. You can reach out to Jay on Twitter. Jay, it was a pleasure, man. Thank you once again. We'll do it again. Thanks, man. Later. Yeah.